Thank you, worship team. Thanks, Kate, for playing, and really appreciate our worship team stepping up, giving Jason Martin a couple of Sundays off. Um, Jen and the team have done a great job last Sunday and this Sunday to give him some space, and so I'm glad that he's had time with his family to rest, but also glad that we, um, we, we haven't missed a beat. We have a worship team who steps up and leads us in worship, so super grateful for the team. If you see somebody uh, who has led you in worship today and you're grateful would you just share that with them before you leave? Like if you bump into somebody, let them know because it's a lot of hard work uh, and hot work too when the ACs aren't, aren't running during rehearsal. So uh, truly through the sweat they prepared. Uh, a couple of quick announcements before we get into Isaiah 61 and mark your calendar type announcements. Um, next Friday, this coming Friday, um, we actually have our fall kickoff. It's a great time. So 6.30, we'll be in this room. Uh, it'll be a fantastic time of worship and casting vision for you as a church, letting you know some things coming up this fall. And, uh, and then we'll end with a meal. Uh, we'll actually share a meal together. It'll be a great time just to, to catch up and linger and just really enjoy the fellowship piece of what it means to be the church. So that's this Friday evening, 630 in this room is where we'll get started. Kids, students, welcome. We'll actually have things for them to do while you're in here. Um, so bring the whole family and come join us. This is churchwide. Everybody's invited and the food's going to be good. So I've been told. Uh, also remember Sunday, next Sunday at 4 o'clock, we have an all-members meeting. It's not a normal scheduled one, so this will be a space for us to make some unexpected announcements and kind of give you a report on where we are for the year. So please make, uh, make sure you mark your calendar for 4 o'clock next Sunday. Uh, again, in this room, we'll be together as the, as the family. Um, if you're a member, you are welcomed, wanted, not obligated, but just almost. So whatever it is right below obligated, that's, where, that's, what, that's what the expectation is. We just really want you to be here. Um, all right, so, um, and another just quick announcement for clarity too. Our students on Sunday morning relaunched today, uh, but just during the 11 o'clock service, and before they would be with us for half the time and then head out, now they've got their own time from beginning to end. So if your students go to student ministry, Alex um, has actually launched a new kind of version of Sunday mornings, and we're excited about it, and they've actually got something for them the whole, the whole time. So, your students are always welcome to join you in here, but also just know they've got a space in the student worship room uh, from the beginning of this service to the end. All right, Isaiah 61 is where we are. We are actually ending the series today. And so we've been in a series looking at um, the, the kind of the origin of suffering, where it came from and how it has impacted people. Um, we've looked at characters in the Bible who've been impacted by suffering. Uh, we saw that really the origin of suffering is sin. Um, that your, your Bible's got 66 books in it, and you're just three chapters in on the first book, and everything comes off the rails. Like, from that point forward until today, nothing has been as it should have been. Nothing is functioning um, in the way that God designed it to function because of the sin in chapter 3. God had warned Adam, hey, if you sin, you'll die. Sin will bring about the curse of death. And so him and Eve disobeyed God, they sin, and death enters the story, and with death comes suffering. And so one of the things that we've been doing along the way is kind of untangling a couple of different things. One, um, that does not mean that every time I encounter suffering, it is my fault. Right? We looked at characters uh, in the Bible, Daniel, for example, his suffering came from doing the right thing, but ultimately seeing that his suffering was connected to the sin of Adam. Sometimes when we encounter suffering, it is a direct result of decisions that we've made, even sinful choices. And sometimes it's just the fact that we woke up on Monday morning and something happens in this broken, fallen world, and we suffer. 
We looked last week, Ken did a great job walking us through Isaiah 53, God's remedy for sin and death, that he actually sent his son to suffer, a brutal suffering in our place, and in that, Jesus atoned for our sin, and then he died and was buried. He overcame death, breaking the bondage of sin and death over humanity, leaving us with this beautiful future promise that one day he shall return. And when he returns, all of his enemies will be made a footstool, and suffering shall be no more. But it still leaves us with a question. What do we do with the wounds that we encounter while we wait? What about this broken heart as a result of the suffering I've encountered? What do I do with that? Is God just telling me to suck it up and white-knuckle it through life and just do my best to avoid any more suffering and make it to the end? Or has Jesus come to do something about the wounds in my heart today? Does he actually care about this ache that I'm carrying inside? Does Jesus do anything for me and my wounds? Sometimes, as I mentioned... I'll make a decision. It's a sinful choice. I'll rebel against God and his law and his character. And the direct result will be suffering. But there are times where your sin causes me suffering. Newsflash. But here's what I want us to understand. Sin is always accompanied with suffering. I want to give you just an illustration. It'll be a made-up story unless this is your story, and then it's a real story for you. Just imagine for a minute a five-year-old little boy. Grows up his first five years of life. Mom and dad are there. They don't get along very well, but he doesn't know anything different. He just thinks this is what mommies and daddies do. But at the age of five, he finds out that daddy's leaving mom. He's going to divorce mom and go start a new family. And so he remarries, and they have kids, and And yeah, he still gets to see dad every other weekend, but it's not the same. It really seems like those kids are dad's kids, and I'm just the the add-on or the extra. Okay, so for that five-year-old little boy, when dad leaves, that suffering is dad's fault, right? He didn't do anything to deserve that. But what will go on inside of his heart if he doesn't find some kind of relief or healing is he'll carry that ache forward, that pain and that sorrow and that sense of, was this my fault? Did I do something to cause... Why why does he want to be their dad and not my dad? Fast forward seven years, he's 12. He's been carrying that ache all this time. Every room he walks into, he's reminded of this ache. He tries to hide. He tries to stay quiet. He tries to sit in the back of the class. Maybe he'll go unnoticed, but he's dying on the inside, longing for some relief for that ache. 12 years old, he's riding on the school bus, First day of school, and he meets a friend who's 13, a year older. He really wants to be liked by this guy. This guy's older, he's kind of more cool, and, you know, he has the lingo and the language down. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's the language? I'm trying to think of some of these words. He's not mid, you know? He's, on, he's fire. And so he's like, man, I'll do anything to be this kid's friend. A few weeks go by, and the, the, the older boy invites him to spend the night yeah mama mom can i please spend the night with so-and-so like they've invited me to go home from school with them on friday i want to spend the night and mom single mom working multiple jobs but yeah go have fun he goes over to the 13 year old boy's house and later that night after the parents go to bed the 13 year old pulls out some alcohol 
said, hey, you need to try this. This 12-year-old boy, first time he takes a drink, he gags, it burns, doesn't taste good, but he really wants this other boy to like him, so he takes another drink. And within about 30 to 60 seconds, his body starts to release serotonin and dopamine. And for the first time since he was five, that pain that he feels inside starts to go down. He starts to feel relief. Now, it's superficial relief. It's counterfeit relief because we all know what's going to happen the next morning, right? Like he's going to go to sleep on cloud nine. And he's going to wake up at the bottom. Because not only is the ache and the pain back and the sadness and the sorrow, but now he's got this new thing called guilt and shame that he's throwing in the backpack. Now he's going to carry that forward. And the only thing he knows is, I'll do anything for the relief I had last night. So a month later, when he gets the invite, he says yes. And so you can see this cycle, how sin begets suffering, and suffering begets sin, and it just becomes this cycle until it's a full-blown addiction. And he keeps going back to the alcohol for relief, and that doesn't do it, so he turns to girls, and when that doesn't do it, he turns to something else, and he just keeps chasing after the next feeling of relief. The next thing you know, he is in bondage to his sin. Today we're going to be talking about the hope for that little boy. Today we're going to be talking about the hope for the little boy and the little girl in you. That there actually is a source of healing and relief that doesn't shackle you in bondage and, and hold you down. And so in Isaiah 61 is where we'll pick this back up. I'm going to read... Uh, first part of verse 1 and then we'll stop and talk about it Isaiah 61 verse 1 says this the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor good start sounds like it's going to lead into a really good direction who's me who's who's saying this so it's interesting in Luke 4 uh, Jesus he's actually in Nazareth his hometown and he goes into the synagogue to, to teach. And he's in there with them. And he goes up and he grabs a scroll on his way up to the stage. And he happens to grab Isaiah 61. And he, he rolls it out and he reads it to them. And then after he reads the very verses that we're looking at, he follows it up with this phrase. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He who is being described in Isaiah 61 is here. You're looking at him with your eyes and you're hearing his voice with your ears. I'm here. And so without a, sh a shadow of a doubt, right? Isaiah 61 is about Jesus. So when you see the word me, we know who that is. What's being prophesied is this, a Messiah is coming and here's what he's going to do for you. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, the original language, this bring good news, it's the word basar, um, and it means to proclaim or make an announcement that brings glad tidings. Okay, so not every time somebody gets up in front of the room and makes an announcement is it good news, right? But this, is the, this carries with it the idea that whatever's being announced or proclaimed is actually good for you and it's going to make you glad. That's the word here. So this Messiah is going to come and he's going to proclaim this good news that's going to make you glad. And who, is, who is this good news going to make glad? Those who are poor. It is not 
the idea of economics. Okay, so if you're here going, oh, this is just for the poor people, it's not what's meant here. This word actually means to be poor in spirit. Um, and so when you think about this idea of good news being proclaimed to those who are poor, it's those who are broken, those who've been afflicted, those who are oppressed or going through suffering. That's the word poor here. It's poor in spirit, to be broken on the inside. That this Messiah would come and he's actually going to make an announcement that will make the hearts of those who have been afflicted glad. You see the connection to suffering? There's good news out there. And we don't have to wait for his return to receive it. So after that, the rest of verse 1 says this, that he has sent me, so God the Father has sent the Son to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We'll walk through that. Bind up. This actually literally in Hebrew translates to bandage. So he's going to come and he's actually going to bandage something. What, what is he bandaging here? He's binding up or bandage, bandaging our broken hearts, the brokenhearted. I was thinking about this recently. The first time I remember somebody putting, uh, you remember uh, monkey blood? Which, just, which was a fancy name for torture? It's a bad idea. We don't do that anymore, by the way. It's cruel. But it was a thing, it was this liquid you put on a wound to clean it out, because ultimately it was, it was supposed to make it better, and it did, but it hurt, didn't it? Like, actually made the pain go up first. I remember um, one of my friends who's in this room who I won't name, his mom putting monkey blood on my knee. For the first time, I was like, whoa, like everything got worse, and then it got better. But we know what it means to dress a wound, right? Sometimes it does get worse before it gets better, but ultimately the goal is what? That the wound would heal. We don't just want to hide the wound. We want to do whatever it is to allow the wound to heal. And so this word is being applied to your hearts. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes the pain does go up before it gets better. But ultimately, this Jesus, this Son of God, this Messiah, is coming to bandage broken hearts, those who have been wounded by suffering, those who have been afflicted by suffering, those who have been oppressed by suffering. So you could interpret it this way. Jesus has come to put a bandage on the wounds of your heart. doesn't sound like a God who's saying, hey, suck it up and get over it. It sounds like the invitation of a good parent saying, hey, come to me and let me dress your wounds. He goes on to say this, not only is he coming to bind up or bandage the broken heart, he's coming to proclaim liberty to the captives. Freedom. It's interesting, I did a little digging, this Hebrew word is also used as a name of a bird. A bird that would just kind of flicker around, make all kinds of quick movements, be like a swift in our kind of our culture today. And so it's the, actually the idea of being set free. Like if you've got a bird in your hands, you're right, you throw it up in the air and you set it free. That's the word here that's describing those who have been captive. And the idea here is those who have been taken captive by others, kidnapped, made slaves, been oppressed by somebody else. That Jesus is actually going to come to those who have been held captive, held in bondage, and set them free. The next thing that we read here is that he's also going to open the prison to those who are bound. This wording is a little harder. 
The word prison actually doesn't exist in the original language. You actually have two words here. One is um, the word that we translate in this translation that says this, the opening. That's actually a word used to describe when you open your eyes. It's what you, how you would describe a person who's blind and can see now. It's like, boom, I can see. That's the opening here. But then the opening is for those who are bound. So the implications then might be that it's like prison doors opening. Or it could also be translated that the blind are now seeing. This Messiah is coming to open the eyes of those who are blind. He's coming to open prison doors for those who have been bound and locked up. Now the next part of this verse 2 is interesting because he says two things. To proclaim two things, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. How do we reconcile those two things? Favor sounds like good news. Vengeance, how are both of those things good news? So the, day of the, the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee. It was in the Hebrew culture by God's design on the seventh year. After the seventh year, what they would do is they would reset culture. Debts were forgiven. Land was returned back to whoever it was taken from. Slaves were set free or bond servants were set free. And so all, like, all debts were paid. And it was just called the year of Jubilee, the celebration. Some of you are like, dude, let's do that. Yeah. But that now is being used to describe setting you free. All your debts are being paid, spiritually speaking. To, that the Messiah would come and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that word favor brings to mind the idea of grace. It's unmerited favor. Okay, which means you haven't earned it and you can't pay it back. Okay, so this is not a barter system of favor. If I do this for God, he'll like me. Some of you are still operating in that system. It's exhausting and it's hopeless and it leads to death. Jesus is coming to proclaim it's something else. Favor from God you can't actually earn. It comes as a gift. Okay, so as recipients of the gospel, that's us. We're in this year of Jubilee. This year of all things being made right. This year of having the Lord's favor, even having done nothing to earn it or pay him back. Is that good news? It's good news for me. It's great news. But what do I do with this day of vengeance that's coming? This actually leads us to the end of the Bible, and I love how the last two chapters of the Bible reconcile the first three. It reads like one beautiful meta-narrative. So when you get to Revelation 21, you're almost done with the Bible. What you're going to read there is that God will make his dwelling place with man again. That is a direct connection to Eden. And in that passage, it says that God will do two things. He will wipe away every tear, and he will end death so that curse of sin and death will be undone so think about it this way there is a day coming where a last tear will fall we don't know who's going to get to cry the last tear the promise of the bible is that there will come a day when there will be no more tears there'll be a human who actually will cry the last tear we're not there yet but what makes that significant and the reason why the tears are done is because that will be the end of God's enemies and that will be the end of death and suffering. In, uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says this, that talking about that day of vengeance, that the Lord will make his enemies a footstool and the last enemy to be put to death is death. That day of vengeance is good news. 
Romans 8, 1 says, listen, if you're feeling like you're struggling to wonder, is that good news to me? Paul says this, listen, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're looking forward to the vengeance of the Lord, not because you want him to go be mean to everybody, but because that will be the end of all suffering and death. And that is good news. So right now we're living in the year of the Lord's favor, longing for and waiting for the day of his vengeance when suffering and sin and death will be no more. But this last phrase here in verse 2 says, to do what? To comfort all who mourn. Those three words are going to outline everything else we talked through today. Comfort those who mourn. And this word, comfort, it means this. It means to display compassion and empathy. So we don't have to wonder what kind of mood God's in. We don't have to wonder what his face looks like when we bring him our pain and sorrow. We don't have to wonder if he's annoyed with us. The Bible says that when you bring your mourning to him, you're going to get compassion and empathy. And that the compassion and empathy of the Lord will comfort you in something specific, though. In what? In your... Say it out loud with me. I want to make sure we get this. Your mourning comfort those who do something what is it mourn yeah now here's the struggle that five-year-old boy was taught not to mourn he was told to suck it up and get over it he cried on the playground or in class his friends made fun of him if mom was too exhausted to deal with his tears she just tried to fix him or distract him or worse than that, shame him. And so he grew up thinking that his tears were proof that something was wrong with him. And since he didn't see anybody else cry, they must be okay and I am not. You live in a culture that teaches you that same lesson every day. If you didn't experience it at home, you experienced it on the playground. Most of us experienced it both places. And so when you feel that aching of mourning and grief and sadness, you automatically go into this mode of, I need to suppress this. I can't let them see my cards. If they see this, they'll make fun of me. They'll reject me. They'll try to fix me, distract me. But I can't help it. This is what I'm feeling. Jesus will come to comfort those who, now say it, mourn. Not those who pretend to be okay. Not th those who try to hold themselves together or fix themselves. Not those who try to be the toughest kid in class. But those who are willing to grieve. He will comfort those who mourn. Jesus has come. And he has come to give compassion and empathy to those who are, and that word mourning here it means to wither away, those who are withering away. All right, verse 3 says this, that he's going to grant something. And I think it's really important to pay attention. What follows is oftentimes the most popular part of this section of the Bible. 
but it follows the phrase, he comforts those who mourn. Because now he's going to, in your mourning, he's going to grant you something. If you bypass your mourning, you don't get what he's about to grant you. In your mourning, he will grant you what? He grants to those who mourn in Zion to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes. So ashes on the forehead would be a symbol of somebody in grief or mourning. Still practiced in some denominations today. But in the Old Testament, if you lost your spouse, one way that the people around you would know it is your garments would change and you would have ashes on your forehead. And so for those who come to Jesus in their mourning, they will receive comfort and he will grant to them a transformation, a healing of the heart. They don't change it themselves. He didn't say, bring me your grief and I'll show you how to fix yourself. He said, no, bring me your grief. I will comfort you and I will grant you, I will give you beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. He's not telling you to go fix yourself and and transform yourself into these things. He's saying, no, 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 all I need you to do is bring me your mourning. I will do this in you. I will grant this to you. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. In our mourning, it feels like we're withering away. It's like our yard looks right now. The grass, the trees even, like everything's withering and dry. That is being used to describe your heart. When your heart is wounded, it's withering away. But take, take your mourning to Jesus. He will comfort you, and then he will grant you headdress instead of ashes, and he will plant you like an oak green, full of life, no longer withering away. Now this next section here is going to be um, almost like um, German to some of you. It'll be a foreign language. But I'm going to say it a couple times so we can get it. Your tears are not an indication of what's wrong with you. Your tears are what's right about you. Your tears are not an indication that you're an inferior human being. Your tears are evidence that you are healthy and operating by God's design. Listen to this next phrase. God designed your face with tear ducts. If not, something's wrong and you need a surgery. He designed your face with tear ducts. Did you know that your tear ducts produce three different kinds of tears? On a molecular level, they're different in substance. Right now in this space, you're blinking and your tear ducts are releasing the the equivalent of saline, just keeping your eyes from getting dry. Now, if not, you need some eye drops. But there's another tear that will come out if you get something in your eye. And it'll be more tears, but it'll have something in it to help clean your eye and keep it free from bacteria and infection. But when you cry out of your sadness, the molecular structure of your tears changes. And your body now releases a stress hormone. That's why it feels good after a good cry. 
God designed that. Not science. Science is just describing what God designed. It's not what's wrong with you and me. It's what's right with us. And this all stems from this promise. Jesus comforts those who mourn. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be. So we have heard this promise. It's just that we don't live it out and experience it in our everyday lives. I'm going to walk through just some did some research around tears and weeping and, and grief from a biblical perspective. When are appropriate times to grieve? I'm not saying this is all the appropriate times. I'm just letting you know that these are appropriate times. Are you with me? Uh, first thing I think about is uh, John chapter 11, when Lazarus has died. We've talked about this before. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they're weeping, they're grieving, along with the Jews. When Jesus comes into town, he sees they're grieving, and the scripture says this, that he he has this stirring of inner turmoil inside of him, this emotional turmoil. And then we get to this beautiful Bible verse that says, Jesus wept. Just using the tear ducts that he designed to do the thing they were designed to do, to weep when you lose something you love. And he already knew about the resurrection, and he still wept with those who mourn. And you know what the response from the Jews was when they saw him crying? You know what the response was? It wasn't, oh, I thought he was the son of God. Why is he crying? They looked at him and said, oh, see how he loved him. So we, we grieve and we cry and we weep and we lose something we love. Someone we love. James chapter 4 says this, we won't read it, but says this, that it's good and right to weep or grieve when you sin that our repentance should be accompanied with grief. So repentance is not just me going, yeah, I did it again. Oops, I did it again, God. Sorry. No, when we repent, it's in sorrow and grief. I'm sad that I disobeyed you. I'm sad that my sin probably caused suffering for others. I'm sad that my sin interrupted our relationship. Whatever it is, I'm grieving in my repentance. The Apostle Paul is going to write a letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, and he talks about how it's appropriate and right to grieve when you see the sins of others. So instead of heaping up shame and condemnation and thought you were better than that, what if we grieved with those who sin? What if we lamented when we see sin in our brother and sister's lives? Not excusing it, but truly allowing our hearts to ache because we know sin leads to death. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. I will read this one. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's good and right when you are with a brother or sister in Christ and you see their tears, and you feel your heart kind of, and your throat tightens up, it's good and right to let those tears come out. It's not what's wrong with you, it's what's right with you. 
You're functioning as a human by God's design. Just a few references from Jeremiah. Did some kind of reading into Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet. I was really curious about that. Why was he so weepy? What was he weeping for? What was he crying for? If you know the backstory, I won't get into all of it, but the nation of Israel was rebelling against God, and God himself, we're going to see, was actually weeping over the condition of Israel. And as a prophet, Jeremiah's job was to turn God's people back. And one of the things I found interesting in chapter 6 in Jeremiah is that one of the indictments against the religious leaders of Israel was that they were coming to the people and saying, peace, peace, while doing nothing to address the real brokenness inside. Like God is angry that they were coming with their lip service, essentially saying, have positive thoughts, have positive thoughts, everything will be okay. And on the inside, God's people were dying. And God is angry at the religious leaders for doing that. One of the invitations that God gave to the nation of Israel in chapter 6 was this. And it was a beautiful invitation into repentance. It was a beautiful invitation to return to the Lord. It's, It's worded this way in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. That's beautiful imagery. Just just walk out to the pathway of your life and look around. Look forward, look back. And ask for the ancient paths. You don't need something new. You don't need a new fix. What you need is you need to go back where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said what? We will not walk in it. We know what's best for us. This is a reference to God's law. Like, come, like, take a walk out to the path of your life and look forward. This is not going in a good direction. Look back to the ancient paths. Remember God's word, his commands, his instruction for life. That's what you need. Nah, we're good. We got this. You get to chapter 8. By this point, the prophet is weeping. He says, my joy, this is 18 of chapter 8, my joy is gone, grief is is upon me, and my heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and the breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign gods? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. That's a Hebrew way of saying, God, where are you? Why are things so hard? Have you left your throne? Are you not the king anymore? Verse 21, for the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Now, understanding that sets us up for chapter 9. I don't know if you've ever gotten to the place of grief where you just felt locked or stuck. You knew you needed to cry, but you just couldn't. You get to chapter 9 in the book of Jeremiah. God gives some interesting instructions to Jeremiah that opened my eyes to see something I'd never seen. 
He says this in verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. What are mourning women? Send for the skillful women to come. For the Hebrews, there were actually people who were really skilled in mourning. And when you couldn't mourn fully for yourself, you could call on them and they would come and minister to you by just being with you and crying. Like there was a, a whole role of skill for the mourners. And God's saying, hey, Jeremiah, here's what you need. You need to call them and invite them in. He says, let them make haste. Let them get here quick and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. This is what the nation of Israel needs. Their wounds have become my wounds. Call for the skilled mourning women. It's time to let some wailing happen. Some of you may have a similar struggle even in your own story. A really big part of our counseling ministry is we've been trained and we train others to sit with you in your story and to mourn with you. There are actually people who are really good at this, and they're not actors. They're truly feeling your story, and they'll mourn with you. Well, this last verse in Isaiah 61 is oftentimes overlooked, and we won't have enough time to fully unpack it, but it is part of the same promise. Verse 4 doesn't always make the coffee cup, but it's connected. So after this Messiah comes and he proclaims this good news to those who are, who are withering away, and he gives an invitation for them to come bring their mourning to him so he can comfort them with compassion and empathy, and then he begins to heal their heart wounds and transform their ashes into beauty. Verse 4. They shall build up the ancient cities. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastation of many generations. It's a beautiful promise. Beautiful promise for the five-year-old boy. Because the world would say, nah, he's destined to be a bad husband. He's destined to be a bad dad. I mean, before he hit high school, he was addicted to alcohol. His life's ruined. But that's not what the gospel says. This Jesus doesn't just come to give me comfort today in my present moment, which he does, but he also goes back and restored the ruined, devastated moments of my life. I've shared this before. I'll share it again. I became a Christian when I was 15. Jesus forgave me of my sins, and I began walking with him. I had hope for a future. But it wasn't until I was 45 that I realized that what happened from zero to 15 mattered too. And that I found the courage and the help from others to go back into my story, to the devastations and the ruins of my childhood, and let Jesus come for me in that too. I was carrying those wounds forward, and I didn't know. They were just in my backpack. I just thought that's what life felt like. I didn't realize that there was any hope for all that. And through God's grace and the help of others, was able to slowly dump that backpack out and find healing for the devastations and the ruins of my early childhood. 
That's why we do story work here as a church in our counseling ministry. Your story matters. And it's scary as all get out to go back into your story and face some of that stuff that happened. But with the help and encouragement and the skill of a kind counselor, you can go back. And you can walk back with Jesus to those devastating, ruined moments of your life and find healing for your weary soul. That's part of the gospel, too. And I love how it ends, that they may repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. If I, as I stand on the road of my life, this promise goes backwards and forwards. For the five-year-old boy, it tells him that he's not destined to repeat his father's mistakes. That Jesus can heal the wounds and he can repair those ruined moments in his life. What Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, what you intended for evil, God will redeem and intend it for good. That's good news, church. And not only that, I have children. The sins of my dad don't have to touch my sons. I'm not big enough to stand in the way and protect my boys from my dad. Jesus is. He's the one this passage is talking about. The devastation of many generations. Just read this last comment. Jesus heals the pain of our past and restores the things in our hearts that have been ruined and devastated. The healing we experience in our mourning, it impacts multiple generations, both directions, and restores hope. One last comment of the sermon before I get to questions. Time does not heal wounds. Your tears do. When you take your tears to Jesus, that's where your wounds are healed. I'm going to ask some questions for us to reflect on, and then I'm going to pray like I, we normally do. Just heads up in my prayer, I'm going to be reading Scripture. I just don't want to throw you off, okay? So that's what I'm going to do, and then our worship team will come out, kind of our normal process. Here's the questions I want us to think about. As I was talking through uh, this passage today, I just wonder what moments of heartache came up for you in your story. Can you remember a time, can you think of an experience that you've had when something broke your heart? Like, that's how you would describe it. Like, broke your heart, that aching inside. You'll sit and think long enough, something will come to mind. Probably a whole list of things. So here's my challenge for you. This is a biggie. Do you allow yourself to truly mourn when you feel brokenhearted? Or did you learn how to turn that switch off a long time ago? Do you know how to mourn? Do you know how to allow yourself to grieve when your heart breaks? Maybe one of the reasons that you don't, if it is a struggle for you, is that your image of God is distorted. Let's start there. Do you believe that God welcomes your sorrow and invites you to bring your pain to Him rather than trying to fix it on your own? Maybe you feel like it's annoying to God or you're frustrating God. Or maybe you have a hard time seeing Him as a loving Father. 
Do you really believe that God welcomes your sorrow? Welcomes it, not tolerates it, welcomes it. He invites it. And then fourth and finally, what step could you take this week to move forward in allowing yourself to be known by God and others in your sadness and your pain? Before we fast forward to how to fix it, what about just sitting in it? What step could you take this week to move towards letting a tear come out? Maybe you just need to go into your prayer closet and sit there until you can cry. And then cry until you can't cry anymore. Maybe you need to go sit over coffee with a good friend and say, hey, can I just tell you about some of the stuff that's coming up for me right now and you not try to fix me? Just give me some space to let some tears out. Maybe you need to call on the skillful mourner, somebody who knows and has that ability to sit with you in your story. A counselor, maybe somebody inside or outside the church who has the skill set to sit with you in your grief and help you grieve. I'm going to pray for us now as I pray. Our worship team's going to come out. Our prayer partners will be at the front. They'd be honored to pray with you today, to mourn with you today if that's what you need. Elders will be available in the commons as well. Let's close in prayer, and I'm going to include some beautiful promises from the Psalms. So, Father, we do thank you that uh, not only is there like a willingness, but there's this beautiful invitation from you to us to bring our sorrow and pain to you. Father, thank you for reminding us that we don't get on your nerves. You aren't annoyed with us in our weakness and brokenness. This morning, Father, I'm praying that you would help us learn to grieve, to mourn, and to bring that mourning to you that we might receive comfort and healing. You tell us in Psalm 23, verse 3, that you restore our soul and you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. In Psalm 30, read this. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from, from Sheol, from the depths. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel, and he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Oh, Father, we pray. You would bandage our wounds today. Father, we pray now your spirit would move. You would do a work in us. Lord Jesus, we pray you would be exalted.